Good morning, ASI. Good morning, ASI. I know it's morning. What a privilege it is for me to be here. You know, I'm over the last few years, I've been up on the ASI platform, uh, usually on Friday nights, and I'm very much looking forward to this Friday night uh, seeing the Youth uh, for Jesus program and the testimonies. I want to thank Lisa for that uh, introduction. Boy, I almost started crying back there. <laughs> it's a little early for that. <laughs> Before we begin, I'd like to have a quick word of prayer with you again, and then we'll get, get right into the talk for this morning. Father in heaven, what an incredible privilege it is to be here, to speak to your people, to speak to such a, a powerful organization working for you. Lord, you know the desires of my heart through this talk this morning. Father, I pray that not one person here uh, would see me in this testimony, but they would see how incredible you are. Father, bless us. Send your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Acts chapter 26. I'm going to try and move quickly this morning through this. Um, I, I just want to share so much with you, but I know um, I only have uh, approximately 50 minutes or so. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 16. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. As I read this later on after I was converted... I saw that this is what happened to me. At some point in our lives, God is going to orchestrate, He is going to allow circumstances in your life to take place so that you can come face to face with Him. This is exactly what happened with me. And I'm going to begin from the beginning, and I'm going to try and move quickly. When I was born... Now, uh, as Lisa told you, I'm from the Boston area. I lived all around Boston. Uh, I figured it out. I was, had lived in 13 cities around Boston before I was in the sixth grade. We moved a lot. I was born to two parents that married very young. I was the middle child of three. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And my parents married very young. My mom was uh, 16 and my dad, I think, was uh, 18. I, I can't remember exactly. When they got married, they, were, they lived a, a, a lifestyle that would um, work with, uh, go along with what he did for work. He was a rock and roll musician, my father. He played the bass guitar, and he was a singer, and he played the harmonica uh, for a group called Jay Giles. Now, uh, some of you older folks may have heard of Jay Giles. They made it big. They began in the 60s and uh, made it big in the, uh, really big in the 80s with a couple albums. My father had, was not a part of that group at the time they made it big. And so with the rock and roll li uh, 
rock and roll comes the lifestyle of rock and roll. And so the drugs and the alcohol were a, a big part of my parents' uh, marriage. And uh, with that, it's the recipe for a broken home. And so my, both my parents were addicted to heroin. They would shoot heroin into their veins. They were alcoholics. They smoked. Uh, they did whatever. Uh, as a matter of fact, they led a life of crime for a little while as well. I remember um, some years when I was older, before I was converted, I was, had got, found some um, old newspaper clippings that my mother had, and um, in it was the headline news for that day uh, from a newspaper from Lexington, Massachusetts, the largest heroin bust in the country. And my father was in the list of names that were arrested uh, for that, uh, that very large heroin bust. So as life went on, my parents, uh, obviously in that type of lifestyle, my parents eventually split up. My mother was very beautiful, and um, there was a lot of men coming around a lot of times, and, and um, I, I'm not sure why they split up. They never divorced. They were separated um, throughout my entire life from very young. And I was probably, uh, I'm guessing, about four years old when they, four or five, when they split up. And of course, this is always uh, very difficult for children when parents split up. And I remember an argument they were having in the kitchen one time, and they were literally pulling me. You know, Kevin's going to come with me. No, he's going to come with me. No, let's ask Kevin, who do you want to go with? I mean, how do you ask a child that? And uh, so this began another portion of our lives as children. My father had left, and I believe my, it was because my mom was unfaithful, because there was always uh, men around. And my father loved her very much. And he, they were still addicted to heroin. When my father left, he, he decided he wanted to clean his act up and get rid of the drugs and alcohol in his life. And so he began that process. My mother, on the other hand, who had custody of us, um, was still doing drugs. And I remember um, at one point she decided she wanted to try and kick the habit of heroin. So back in those days, this is the early 70s, you would go to these clinics that they had set up for heroin abuse, and you would go to this clinic and they would give you another drug called methadone. It was a, a, a red liquid and you would drink it. And it was supposed to help you with the addiction of heroin. Now they understand today that it helps you with the addiction of heroin because you become addicted to the methadone instead. And so I remember we would drive into this clinic often, sometimes with my father, sometimes with my mother. And one evening, um, we were driving with my mother, and she was driving. My little brother was an infant on the front seat. I was sitting behind my mother in the back seat, my sister to the right of me, and I kept sitting up on the seat. And she kept saying, Kevin, sit back, sit back, sit back. And finally I sat back. And as soon as I did, I fell asleep. The next thing I remember was the police pulling us out of the car, out of a river, out of the Charles River. As soon as I had fallen asleep, my mother passed out behind the wheel. She veered off the side of the road uh, in a section of the Charles River where they don't have railings uh, or anything. We hit a tree, praise the Lord, and we rolled into the river. And... Um, I'm skipping a lot. There was a lot of spiritualism in my family. My parents were very intrigued by spiritualism. And um, earlier that day, my mother and I uh, broke into somebody's house. <laughs> These um, people next to us who were hippies, 
they were, they were, you know, it was kind of the, the still the hippie era coming, kind of coming out of that. And um, they were hippies. They were a rock band, and I was very intrigued by them. And they were devil worshippers. And I remember I snuck into their basement one time with my friend, and they had coffins down there. And of course, little kids, we were freaked out and would run upstairs. I'd run out to my house and tell my mother. And so she was intrigued. Well, that uh, that morning I was out playing on my big wheel. Do they do they have, still have big wheels today? Guys, I used to love my big wheel. And so I was playing on my big wheel, and all of a sudden these this these hippies come running out of their house like they just saw a ghost. They jumped in their van and they screeched off. I ran and I told my mother. And so she said, come on. So we, we, she took me in the house and sure enough, they left everything and we went into the living room and they had a, they had a, a podium in the living room. And on it, uh, I'm not sure, I believe it was the satanic Bible. It looked like a Bible. It was black leather, uh, but it was not a Bible. And they had chairs set up in their living room where they would have these, these services um, worshiping the devil. I remember going upstairs and we went in a room and they had, they had a, a little table set up with a black cloth over it and they had candles lit and, and uh, there was all kinds of demon stuff around and, and witchcraft books. And so something happened in their service and they got frightened and, and ran off. Well, that evening is when we got into the, the car wreck. And it's very interesting um, the tree that we hit, as we found out later and still to this day, has a satanic symbol on it, one that my mother and father had seen in a book. My mother told me recently when I was talking to her about this last year, she said, Kevin, not only that, but when I was in the hospital, now my, the, the engine ended up on my mother's lap. She broke her legs, her back, her neck. Uh, she, was, she was out of service for a while. She said, while I was in the hospital, your father came to see me. And he was looking at the, the, the marks on my leg, and there was a satanic symbol on my knee, a scar that we had just seen in a book in Harvard Square that intrigued us. And so this went on. So, so now this car accident happens. My mom has custody of us. Now, back then, the Department of Youth Services, they were, a lot of things got swept under the carpet, and, and uh, they didn't give a lot of rights to the father usually in a situation like this. So my mom still had custody of us while she was in the hospital for a few months. And we had caretakers come, the state provided, to kind of uh, raise us for a few months. And um, that went well, I guess. We survived through it. And um, then it was time for my mom to come home. But she was still laid up in bed. She was bedridden. And they were still giving her drugs. They had her pumped up on morphine. And one, whenever she would come around, she would wake up and she would take more drugs for the pain and she would call the taxi company and have them deliver her a bottle of vodka. She was still drinking. And so the taxi company would come by and drop off the bottle of vodka. Well, while this was taking place, there was one taxi driver that took a liking to her. And one thing led to another and they began, uh, I guess you would say, dating. And when my mother was well enough to, to get out of bed and walk around, then they decided it would be best for us to move in with her boyfriend. Now, uh, that's something normal these days, and uh, it was, wasn't so normal back then, but um, the abnormal part was we moved in with, it was my mother, myself, and my brother and sister. We moved in with her boyfriend, her boyfriend's wife, and his kids. 
And so we're living in a place called Charlestown. If you know the Boston area, Charlestown is kind of um, historic. The um, Charlestown Monument and through the, the uh, battles there. Uh, well, Charlestown is more notorious for Bostonians for being a place ridden with crime. Organized crime from the Irish Mafia and uh, drugs and, and uh, these types of things. So we move into these projects, the Bunker Hill Projects, uh, named after the Bunker Hill Monument. And these were rough, rough projects. Now, we were, we were kids that had never been exposed to these types of things. We had always lived in decent areas up until this point. Uh, my mother's father always um, provided funds for us to live in a decent place, even though they were, they were wasting a lot of the money on drugs. At this point, we moved into these projects. And I remember the very first day we were there, a gang of ladies, or I should say women, jumped my sister. There was about 10 of them. And they beat her really bad. And that was kind of the initiation into this new neighborhood. And so we, this began a chapter in our lives that was, that was very dark. Her boyfriend, my mom's boyfriend, was an alcoholic. And he was a violent alcoholic. And he would get drunk. And then he would um, get violent and turn that on us kids, my brother and sister and myself. And uh, mainly on my brother and um, on myself as well. But the, 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 the brunt of the... Abuse was on my little brother. My little brother was, was the cutest little, little kid ever. Blonde, blonde hair, big blue eyes. And uh, he didn't like that, apparently. So uh, as we were living with them for this period, I remember we would um, go hungry. We literally would be starving. They would spend all their money on, on alcohol. And uh, they would eat, of course. They would eat like kings. And, but they would never feed us. And so I remember being starving. And my mother's boyfriend had a daughter that was my age, and we used to hang around. So we went out one day, and we decided um, we were going to try and find a way to eat. And so this began my, my career uh, as I walked into a, a supermarket chain that I don't know if, um, yeah, I guess they're still around, Stop and Shop. I walked in there, and I decided I was going to steal some food to eat. And, you know, I was a little kid. And what would you steal if you were a little kid hungry and you went into a supermarket? <laughs> Maybe candy bar or something, right? No, no, no. That stuff is bad for you. The very first thing I stole was a coconut. <laughs> Could you imagine? Now, I'm starving half to death, and I steal a coconut. What in the world are you going to do with a coconut? It took me like hours to get this thing open. Finally, I'm like smashed it on a brick. And like after about a hundred times, the thing smashed and we lost all the coconut milk. And, and then it's you know, tough to eat anyways. And um, so I learned very quickly, you know, to get a little wiser in my selection of food. And so I began stealing every single day I was in the supermarket. It was only the hand of God uh, that was winking at my ignorance that protected me. Because I was in that supermarket two, three times a day. I'd just walk in, pick stuff out, and walk out. And no one ever even looked at me twice. And so I, I began eating like this. And this was a, a pretty uh, good career for me if I wanted to eat. Uh, until one day, my partner in crime got caught. And she had gone alone. I didn't know she went. And I came home, and her father was in the window waiting for me. And I knew I was in trouble. He said, Kevin, come on up here. We need to talk. And right then I knew exactly what happened. She had got caught and told on me. And so I went up there and I, I took the beating. Um, 
And uh, so this ended my career as a thief. And so I had to find another way of finding food. And so one afternoon I was walking down the street and I saw some food in an open trash can. And I thought, well, that looks pretty good. And so I took it and I ate it. And I thought, wow, this is pretty good. In these trash cans, there's plenty of food. And so every day I would go out and I would dig through people's trash like a homeless person would, and that's how I would eat. And I didn't think anything of it. I thought this was, this was normal until one day I was across the street from my house and I was sitting inside of a dumpster and I had found this big aluminum foil and opened it up and there was a big piece of steak. Now, I wasn't an Adventist at that point, <laughs> and it was a big piece of medium-rare steak and a baked potato. And man, it was good. It wasn't bad. And so I began eating it. And as I'm sitting in this dumpster eating, a young adult came in, and he went to throw a bag of trash in that dumpster, and he saw me in there, and he was horrified. And the look that I saw in his face made me realize that this is not normal not normal. And so I stopped uh, stealing food. Uh, growing up, we never... I was the child that parents would tell their kids, do not hang around with him. You can't. Because we were out of control. I didn't have to go to school if I didn't want to. I very rarely remember ever bathing as a child. And so I was that child. I'm sure I probably smelled horrendous I was always dirty. I was that one that your parents would tell you, don't hang around with that person, with that child. So this went on for a while. The abuse got worse and worse. At one point, my little brother got caught stealing a little box of Kellogg's cereal. You know those eight packs of the Kellogg's cereal? Well, he stole it out of the kitchen. Uh, we had to steal in our own house to eat. And he got caught, and so my mother's boyfriend uh, beat him severely, uh, so bad that he almost killed him. And so they decided they, they couldn't take him to the hospital because then uh, it, it would come, uh, be known what happened, so they just locked him in the bedroom for weeks. And during this time, my grandmother, my father's mother, was meeting up with us secretly. And she would give us um, some encouragement. She would take us, like, to McDonald's, and we loved that. And she would let us know that my father was, had cleaned up his act, and he's trying to get custody of us and to hang on because they are, they are working on this. And I remember one day during this two-week period, my brother had been almost killed. Uh, he had been locked in the room at this point for two weeks. And we met with my grandmother, and she said, Kevin... When you go home today, get your stuff ready. We're coming to get you. And I remember, I went back to the house, and this was a, I had mixed feelings, mixed emotions. We were so happy to get out of there, but we were so sad we had to leave my mother. And I remember, we're in the, I was in the living room, and uh, the police came, and when the police came and knocked on your door on the projects, you knew it was the police. They just had a special way they knocked. They knocked on the door, and all the adults threw the vodka underneath the couch and tried to straighten up, and they answered the door, and sure enough, it was the uh, Department of Youth with the police officer, two police officers, with the paperwork, and said, we're taking these children out of here. And it was one of the happiest days of my life, although it was sad. So we began living with my father. 
And my father had kicked the habit of heroin and alcohol, but he was very sick, um, always, since I can remember. He had um, contacted hepatitis through using a dirty needle, uh, using heroin. And the hepatitis led to different uh, ailments as well, eventually to cirrhosis of the liver. And uh, so he was always in and out of the hospital. Now, my father and I got very close. I was the oldest boy. And uh, we did a lot of things together when he felt up to it. And uh, in the city we were living was Somerville, Massachusetts. Now, that whole area of Boston uh, is basically run by mafia, uh, either Italian mafia or Irish mafia, just to give you an example. Uh, a lot of the um, bar rooms, a lot of the liquor stores are Irish mob-owned. The, the Italian restaurants and nightclubs are Italian mob-owned. And so it's all over the place, um, so you grow up with that. Now, I had um, become a boxer. I, uh, my father loved the sport of boxing, and I wanted to make him proud, and, and uh, we were pretty close, so I began boxing. And uh, right away I took to it. I became a natural at it. And over a few years, a couple of years of training and, and fighting, my, my um, trainer had mentioned that I had the potential of being an Olympic fighter. Now, this man had trained a lot of uh, uh, famous fighters in the area. And so my dream in life became becoming an Olympic fighter. I wanted to win the gold medal for the United States in my weight division, and then I wanted to eventually become the world champion, uh, Walter Waite champion of the world, is what my dream was. It became my life. I, everything I did revolved around that. So life was good, so to speak. And my father had been sick off and on, always in and out of the hospital. And I remember the day he went into a, the hospital for another operation, the Thursday night. And I came home from school Friday afternoon, December 5th, 1980. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the phone rang. It was my grandmother, my father's mother. She said, and I answered it. She said, Kevin, she said, you know your father went in for the operation today. I said, yes, how did he do? She said, he didn't make it. And I went into shock. Like, how could this be? How, it was just another operation. How could this be? And I, I couldn't speak. I couldn't cry. Just handed the phone to my sister. Went in the other room. Later on that Friday night, we went to my grandmother's we, uh, to, to make some plans and talk about what we were going to do, who was going to take care of us. Um, I, I was uh, just turning 15 at the time. It was a few weeks before Christmas. And during this time, I had hooked up with some uh, wrong influences in, in, um, in school. Because of my fighting background, I started to gain a reputation with the wrong people. And so that Friday afternoon, we were at my grandmother's. I went into her medicine cabinet and stole a bottle of Valiums from her. Now, those of you that don't know what Valiums are, they're, um, they relax you, and they're very strong. These were called roach. They're 10 milligrams each, and I remember I stole 18 of them, and I still hadn't told anybody what had happened. I couldn't talk about it. I, I literally was in shock. So I went out with some friends that night, two friends, and we bought a, a case and a half of beer. We bought a quart of hard liquor and a pint of hard liquor. We bought some marijuana, and I had the pills between three of us. And apparently, 
um, I had started drinking very fast. And we started smoking the pot and we're drinking the hard liquor. And I'm drinking very, very fast, my friends realize. I didn't realize it. Then I pulled out some of the pills. I lied to my friends. I said I stole six of these pills. I gave two to each of them, and I took the other 14. Now, this is a miracle. That should have killed a horse, especially just the pills alone, let alone the hard liquor and the marijuana and the beer. Well, the next thing I remember, I woke up. Um, I had blacked out. I had... Um, gotten alcohol poisoning as well as overdosed on the pills and um, didn't know what happened because I had blacked out. Apparently, I blacked out and started crying and trying to beat people up and just a mess. And so this began another chapter of my life. Uh, I never felt so alone in my life. Fourteen years old, just turning 15. Now I have to become a man and had no one there for me, no one in my family, no males in my family stepped up to the plate. Uh, my family was kind of the black sheep in the family because of the drugs. So this began a, a downward spin of drugs and alcohol. I was in so much pain. I had such an empty feeling inside that I was trying to fill, uh, and I didn't know how to fill it. And so I turned to drugs and alcohol. I would wake up. Now, my mother moved back in with us to take care of us. I despised her at this point. Uh, it's already tough enough with your teen years and parents. And I despised her. And she was still drinking, so I would steal her vodka in the morning. I would drink a quart of vodka with uh, orange juice before I'd go to school, junior high school. And I would go in drunk, and I would pick somebody out, and I would beat them up. And I was always in the office um, for months on, at hand. Now, praise the Lord, the principal found out what happened. I never told anybody, but he read it in the newspaper. So he tried to get help from me with the guidance counselor. It didn't work out. We didn't connect. And eventually I started getting suspended and suspended and suspended. When I was old enough to quit, then I quit school and um, started working in the restaurant business. And I got burnt out in the restaurant business over a few years. I, my addiction was drugs and alcohol, which blended in very nicely with the restaurant business in the area because that was the, the, um, the kind of clientele that you had and the people you worked around, they party a lot. And so I worked in the restaurant business for a while, and I had a um, child with my high school girlfriend, my son Kevin Jr., and it was the best thing that had ever happened to my life. Because of my child, I decided I have to give up this lifestyle. I remember thinking one day, what would happen if there was ever a fire in my house and I couldn't wake up because I was too drunk? At this point, I was drinking every single day, morning. Uh, every night, I would drink two six-packs of 16-ounce uh, Budweiser's uh, before I'd go to bed. And I thought, what if I couldn't wake up and there was a fire? And something happened to my son. I would never be able to live with myself. So I, as I was looking at myself in the mirror one day, I decided to give up smoking and drinking and, and the whole nine yards. So now I'm, work became my addiction. And I would work over 100 hours a week in the restaurant business. And it's a very... Um, it's a business that you get burnt out in quickly, and especially if you're working those kinds of hours. I got burnt out after a few years of this and continued in the restaurant business, even though I despised it at this point. But I had no education to fall back on. 
always struggled in school because when I was little, I never had to go to school. So when my father took custody of us, I was always behind and always struggled, couldn't understand things. And uh, so I always struggled in school. So I had no background. I mean, I had no educational background. And the only thing I know how to do was cook and fight. And um, I hated cooking at this point, didn't want to get back into fighting. And so I decided I was going to um, begin a career in gambling. Uh, brilliant. And, you know, the devil uh, puts these beautiful ideas in your head. And they just seemed so good at the time. And I thought, yeah, you know, I know football. I'll start, you know, I know all the bookies in the area. I'll start gambling and betting on football games. And so that's what I did the very first Sunday. Now, should Christians gamble? No. Not playing lottery, any of that. We should not be involved in that. Incidentally, no Christian should be involved in boxing. We shouldn't be watching it. We shouldn't be... Uh, involved in it at any level because it's all mafia run not only is it shouldn't be involved anyways but the mafia owns the boxing world and so now I start gambling the very first Sunday I bet on the games I bet on every game on the board Sunday I don't know if it was 11 or 13 games at the end of the day Sunday I had won every single game and I remember Tuesday you would you would Whatever, whether you won or lost, Tuesday you would go into the bar room and meet in the back room with the bookie and either pay or get paid. I remember that Tuesday I went in and um, sat down with the uh, bookie who was actually, he was a, a boss of a small family. And he said, Kevin, sit down. He said, all the years of, of, of my career as a bookie, I've never seen somebody do this. You hit every single game. Well, of course, I left there with a, a bundle of money, and I thought, ha, this is it. I'm going to make my millions gambling with the bookies. And um, you never come out on top when you gamble. That was the last weekend I won a game. Week after week, I just lost. Of course, I lost all the money I won. Then I lost all the money that uh, I had. Then I lost money I didn't have. I started betting, trying to win back to break even, and the bookies... Um, liked me, they had uh, previously, because I had built a name for myself, not only in the ring, but outside the ring, I had gained a reputation in my city. And so the bookies, uh, uh, the people in the mob used to, uh, more than, uh, I can't tell you how many times, they were trying to recruit me to work for them, to um, help them collect debts. And I would, would not do that. Uh, you know, I had morals. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So now I find myself in this situation where I owe the bookies a lot of money, thousands of dollars. Finally, I called in a bet, and they said, Kevin, we can't do it. As a matter of fact, you need to come in, and we need to talk. So I went in. We had our meeting, and they said, Kevin, you owe us thousands of dollars. We've been lenient with you. We like you. We're trying to help you win your money back, but you couldn't win if we gave you winners to pick. And so now we have a situation. You owe a lot of money, and we're going to get that money from you one way or another. And you're going to decide that way. Either we're going to get it from you, or we're going to get it from you. And so here's your option. You work for us and work your bill off, or we'll go to plan B. And I knew what plan B was. So I thought about it for about eight seconds and decided my best career move at this point in my life would be to work for this mob family. So I began selling drugs, um, began selling cocaine, 
And then it went to heroin and marijuana and pills and steroids, and it just snowballed. And so I became very busy immediately in my city and surrounding cities. And so much so that within a couple of weeks, I was able to pay off my bill with the bookies. And I decided I'm going to break off from them. I'm not going to sell drugs for this mafia family anymore. I'm going to do it on my own. This was going to be my new career. Now, but I had morals, mind you. So I wasn't going to sell to any kids because I had a heart for kids always. And I wasn't going to sell to pregnant people or anything like that. And I, and I told myself, I'm not going to turn anybody on to drugs. If they come to me, then if I don't sell to them, somebody else will, so I might as well benefit from it. My God became money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is what? The root of all evil. And so my God, my love was money. I had never had that. We were so poor growing up. I remember one day I asked my father for 10 cents to get on a bus. And he couldn't give me 10 cents. We were so poor. Now, my father was sick for years. And welfare uh, thought he was lying. And so they would never give us um, any support from welfare. So we were very poor. Now I have this opportunity that I've seen um, can bring a lot of money very quickly. So I began selling drugs on my own. One thing led to another. It went from drug dealing to, to dealing in guns and ammunition to, to steroids to stolen car rings to breaking and entering rings. And before I knew it, I had seven, eight, nine people working for me, and I was making a lot of money. Now, of course, when you get involved in drugs, you never, ever win. At any level, you get involved with drugs, you will not win. The foundation began to crumble under me. One of the guys I had working for me got arrested, and he gave the police my name. Then another man, a few months later, got arrested, gave the police my name. Two or three or four of my guys got arrested and gave my name, so the police obviously knew about me. And I knew they knew about me, and they knew that I knew they knew about me. And so it began a cat and mouse thing, where I'd get into to um, almost get arrested sometimes and get out of it, and I just, I was addicted to the lifestyle. I hadn't, didn't do drugs at this time because I saw the foolishness of that. If you're going to sell drugs, you can't do drugs because you're not going to make money. So I was selling drugs and I thought I would never get caught because everyone thinks that. And um, eventually, lo and behold, I got caught. I got caught. I had just picked up some drugs and uh, I never did this. But I dropped it at my house to go make a sale uh, with somebody else. Then I was going to come back and hide it and take care of it. When I went out to make the sale, the police were following me in my unmarked vehicles. They, um, I got into a, a small chase, but um, it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I had a very fast car. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and there was a lot of children coming out of schools. And so um, I always had a hat for children, and I thought, what if? And so I pulled over. And they caught me with a small amount of drugs, and I got arrested. And I remember I'm sitting in jail, and I know what I just did. I just picked up enough drugs to put me away for a long time. So you know what I did? I prayed. Now, I didn't even know if God existed. I'm in that jail cell, and I said, God, if you're real, get me out of this, and I'll never do this again. Did you ever pray a prayer like that before? So God held to his end of the bargain. The bail was very high on me, um, and I had an attorney already because I knew 
um, just in case. And so my attorney had gotten the bail down to uh, a low amount, and I bailed out. And what do you think I did? Right back into it. Right back into it, started selling drugs again while I'm going to court for this case. And uh, after about a year or so, um, a second time I got caught. I was sitting there watching the World Series game. My partner had just left the house. And about 10 minutes later, my door came caving in. And I found myself on the floor uh, with a house full of police, state police, and ATF, and all others. And I got arrested a second time. And what do you think I did? Worked the first time. So I prayed a second time. Lord, uh, I didn't say Lord, I said, God, I know what I said the last time. But this time I really mean it. If you get me out of it, I'll never do this again. So sure enough, it was a higher bail and it got a little lower. And I bailed out. And what do you think I did? Right back into it. And then a third time, I got arrested, not for drugs this time. As a matter of fact, the second time wasn't for drugs. They didn't find drugs in my house. They found guns and ammunition. This third time, I get arrested with stolen property. Um, and so I bailed out a third time. So now it comes time. My, my cases are building up, and I'm going to um, court. Every month I'm going to court now, and it comes time for the trial. And the district attorney cut a deal with me because both my big cases, they made a lot of mistakes. At this point, I had two very high-paid attorneys in the Boston area, and there was a lot of mistakes made. And so I had an option. Either I could take it to trial and possibly win, but if I don't, I'm looking at at least 25 years, 22 years in jail. My son was eight years old at the time, and so they offered me a deal. They would give me 22 years in prison in the sentence, but it would be wrapped up in five years mandatory. So I would have five years for distribution of cocaine, five years for conspiracy, uh, two years for this gun, two years for that gun, years and years, and it adds up to 22 years, but I only serve five. So I decided to take that deal, and my partner had already been arrested and gone to prison. And so he was, we were communicating on the phone. And he said, Kevin, you're going to have problems when you come in here. Now, I had been to prison when I was 17. Um, I skipped through that, but at 17, I was first time in an adult prison. And so he said, Kevin, you're going to have uh, problems when you come in. Uh, there's some people saying some bad things about you, saying that you set them up and you told them that. Now, I didn't think anything of it because I knew a lot of people in prison, so I thought they knew me, they knew me, them, and it wouldn't be a problem. It wasn't until I got into prison I realized what a serious problem I had on my hands. Now, I was a fighter. I would fight anybody. And at this point, I was uh, taking steroids. I was into weightlifting. And so I thought I was invincible. Now I find myself in this prison. And some friends that I had, my, my best friend was in prison. He wouldn't even look at me or talk to me. No one would talk to me. No one would give me a bar of soap. Nothing. And then I realized I had some serious problems. So when I got in, some, some top guys in the prison had a meeting with me, wanted to know how my, my trial went and, and how much time I got and these types of things. They were trying to determine what did he really tell on people. And so I had a friend that I used to box with. His father used to train me. 
And he said, Kevin, you don't understand. You've been labeled. You don't understand what it's like in a state prison. Once you're labeled, you're always labeled. I can't help you. Now, this man had become a Christian in prison. He said, Kevin, there's nothing I can do to help you because if I help you, then I'm in trouble. So I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was going to be put in a position at some point where I was going to either have to kill somebody or be killed. And I wasn't a killer. I would fight anybody, but I wasn't a killer. These guys are killers. And so I went back to my cell that day, and my first cellmate was a backslidden Christian. He had seen some things that were going on. He gives me a Bible. He says, Kevin, check this out. You ever read the Bible before? I said, of course not. He said, well, take a look at it. Every single verse I opened to, God was speaking to me, telling me, do not be afraid. Every single one. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff will comfort me. Psalm 50, 15, call upon me in your time of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Fear not those that can kill the body and not the soul. On and on and on. And as I'm reading these, this incredible peace came over me. And I couldn't explain it, but I could feel the presence of God in that cell. And I didn't even know it was the presence of God yet. And so I felt at peace. I went out to go to the yard that day, just coming from reading. must have been 12 verses. And I knew it was God, but I didn't know God. And I'm walking by my best friend, and he didn't want to see people talking to me. He said, Kevin, don't go out to the yard. And I stopped him. I said, why not? He said, because Johnny Arms, this man was called Johnny Arms, because he had biceps like this big. He said, he's going to stab you today in the yard. And I had just come from reading this. I said, Richie, he's not going to stab me. I just knew. Fear not. And he said, please, Kevin, don't go out there. I went out there. Johnny never came out for the 45 minutes of yard time. Later that night, I found out that Johnny was on his way out to stab me. Somebody bumped into him. He got into a big fight with him, stabbed him, and one got taken to the hospital, and Johnny Arms got removed to a higher security. And right then I knew that this was God and he was going to protect me. And so this began my search for God in this prison. One thing led to another. I would go to every service that came in, Protestant service, Catholic service. On Tuesday nights, I'm doing the rosary beads. And let me tell you, you know, I grew up Catholic. The rosary beads are the most boring thing you will ever do in your life. I mean, really. But I would do it because I thought that's what you did. You know, that's how you got closer. Then on, on Monday nights, I go to the Protestant service. And during the Protestant service one evening, the preacher made an altar call. I accepted Christ into my life. And I'll never forget it. Now, a lot of guys do this in prison. And a lot of times it's not sincere and whatever. A lot of times it is. For me, the moment I accepted Christ into my life, it was like a, a, a ton was taken off my chest. And I could first time in my life breathe. And I remember leaving, and I just felt the world was different. I left there that night. It was the middle of the winter. We're walking back to our unit, and and the stars are brighter. The the air was thinner. It was the most amazing thing. And this began something incredible. Those five. So I spent five years in prison. It was the best five years of my life. I had peace every day in prison. God blessed me. We don't have time. I could tell you story after story in prison. He blessed me. Uh, He always uh, provided for me. 
And I always went to the best, best prisons, if you will, never even asking to. And there was a line of people trying to get into these prisons. One thing led to another. In every prison I was in, I always ran into... Um, there are some prisons that are better than others. <laughs> and uh, uh, like some prisons have better food, and that's huge. So anyways, I like to eat. And so in every prison, there was a man, Milton, Puerto Rican man, backslidden Adventist. And man, he was weird, like always had his shirts all the way up and always had his Bible. And I had become a Christian, didn't know how to be a Christian. So I would stay away from him because it was a little too freaky for me at the time. But he would always say hi and had respect for him. One thing led to another. I'm in the last prison of minimum security. I had made my way down about halfway through my sentence, and I had the best job in the prison. I would leave the prison. Didn't even know the job existed until I got it. There was a line of people waiting, some people waiting for a year and a half to, to be next on this, in this job. I didn't even know it existed, and they called me down and said, Kevin, we're giving you a new job. You're going to work at the fire department. So I would leave every day at 8 o'clock in the morning and work with the firefighters all day, and then come back at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm leaving prison. It was incredible. Well, what happened was I got a little too comfortable. The firefighters were a little wild, and um, we hit it off. And so I started uh, getting away from the Bible, not studying as much when I came back, not praying as much. And I started getting, uh, I guess you would say, Laodicea before I was even a a, a Laodicean Adventist. (laughs) I was Laodicean before I was Laodicean Adventist. And um, so I started smuggling things back to the prison. Now, not anything bad, but there was a sub shop across the street, and food is huge in prison. And so I, for my buddy's back, I would load up with sub sandwiches, and, and uh, I got along good with the guards, so half the time they didn't search me. And I remember one time I was sitting in the back of that car when they come to pick me up, and I'm, like, loaded down with these subs, and they were, like, all steak and cheese. And so they're all hot, and they smell. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, man, I never thought of this. All I can smell is steak and cheese subs. I am going to get caught. And so, praise the Lord, I got back. They never searched me. I just went right up to my cell. And um, one day, um, somebody, however, they they told that I was doing this, and I got caught. They came and uh, got me. I lost the job. And right away, I knew this was... God's hand was over me. I knew what I was doing. I was getting away from studying the Bible. And uh, that day I lost my job. I was depressed. I'm sitting on my cell. Milton comes in. He gives me an Amazing Facts Bible study guide. You've seen the Amazing Facts. He said, hey, check this out. Is there anything left you can trust? Tell me how you liked it. I read it. Wow, this is unbelievable stuff. I never knew this stuff. I went back to his cell. I said, you have any more of these? He said, yeah. He gave me the next one on the Great Controversy. First time reading the Great Controversy theme it just blew me away. Third, I said, man, so I kept going back. In two days, I read 27, the entire 27 lessons. I couldn't get enough. From that point on, we began studying the Bible together, Milton and I. And this man knew his Bible. And I got in good with the, with the guards, so they would let me use the phone, the prison phone. I hope they don't see this if it ever gets to the Framingham area. This is a huge security breach. So I would call the ABC in the, uh, South Lancaster, and I would order these books. So in my, and then the property officer was, we were, we were, he kind of liked me. He would bring them up because they were contraband. He would bring them up to my cell for me in the back stairs. So in my cell, I have the complete Seventh-day Adventist commentary set. I have the Conflict of the Ages series. I have all these books. And we would, every day, for 12 hours a day, we would pour through those. 
And it was the most, we, we studied together the desire of ages. We studied the great controversy. We studied the Bible 12 hours a day. I could not get enough. Never heard this stuff before. New England, where this message was born. Never heard it before in my life. Like most in New England, mind you. So I couldn't wait to get out. Couldn't wait to meet some Adventist people. Like, wow, Adventist people. Like from 1844. Couldn't wait to meet Ellen White, by the way. <laughs> I didn't know she had passed. I'm like, I wonder what church she goes to. And, like, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I especially couldn't meet the youth. I'm thinking, man, these are going to be like halos, white robes, like hovering. And, uh, and I really thought that they would know every word that Ellen White ever wrote, the young people. Couldn't wait to meet them. A pastor, forget it. An Adventist pastor, like, wow. And so I got out and uh, kind of went through a culture shock for a little while. Especially in New England, you, it's, it's difficult to find a church in the Boston area. And um, one thing led to another. I found a church... Uh, eventually got baptized, uh, Pastor Eric Duran. Uh, he's a pastor here in Florida, in this area. Um, he uh, is a Mark Finley's brother-in-law. He told me that at the time. Uh, he said, you know, I'm Mark Finley's brother-in-law. I said, ah. Oh. <laughs> really? Is he a church member? <laughs> and he said, you've never heard of Mark Finley? <laughs> no. <laughs> and so, uh, don't tell, is Mark here? Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> so... Uh, so this began, I got baptized, and right away they, they put me in the youth ministry, and I was leading out the youth, and one thing led to another. And the, at this time, Pastor Duran had left. We were a, about a year and a half without a pastor. And the head elder, Paul Maxwell, a, a friend of mine, said, um, he gave me a pamphlet. He said, Kevin, I want you to check this out. Tell me what you think of it. It was a, a flyer on the uh, AFCO program. And I looked through it. I see Pastor Doug on the front. You know, that's how I came into the church. And I looked through it. I thought, wow. So I was praying about it. I'm on my knees praying about it. My phone rings. I answer my phone. It's Paul. He said, Kevin, what would you think of that uh, flyer? Have you got a chance to read it? I said, yeah, I, I would love to go, but I can't afford to. He said, don't worry about it. I've already brought it to the board, and we're going to pay for you to go. Every week we're going to raise money for you. They raised enough money for me to go. They raised enough money for me to pay my bills while I was gone. So I went to AFCO. Didn't know what to expect. Didn't know what a Bible worker was. Didn't know what an evangelist was. Oh, there was one stipulation. They said, Kevin, there's one stipulation. If we send you, you have to come back and do a series and use the new beginnings. I said, sure. You know, whatever. I'll do it. I want to go. I had no idea what he was talking about. Do a series? Like new beginnings? What in the world is that? But I knew I would do it because I wanted to go. Then when I was in AFCO, I realized what I had said yes to. Now, I had a public speaking phobia my whole life. Uh, I had ran restaurants and, and could never have a, a, a meeting because I was so afraid to speak. And I thought, oh, Lord, what did I get myself into? Like, I'm going to preach a series? Are you kidding me? And um, so one thing led to another. AFCO uh, was a mixed uh, blessing and, and struggle. I did good in the academics, in the class, and did terrible on the outreach. And I uh, couldn't get a Bible study if my life depended on it. Got two Bible studies in four months and lost them both. And um, praise the Lord, what did I become when I got out of there? A Bible worker. <laughs> couldn't get a Bible study if I had to. And uh, the Lord blessed, and, and I just wanted to work for God. I, all I wanted to do was work for God with this message. There is power in this message that we have. And I know that if I had become a Baptist or another denomination in, in, in prison, I wouldn't be here today. 
Now, there is power in this message. I just wanted to work for God. He opened one door after another. He right away opened a door when I got out of prison to go into a Department of Youth Services, one of the worst in the country, um, in the Boston area, to begin studying the Bible with youth that are locked up. Some of them will never get out of prison. They'll go right from the youth to a, an adult facility. And the Lord blessed me in that. And then one thing led to another through Bible work. I end up working with ASI Youth for Jesus program. And had never, amen. And here's some, some youth. It's so, I just love coming here, especially, this is my first year. Now, I had done this for five years, the last five years, um, uh, in charge of the Youth for Jesus program. And, and it's the greatest program in the world for youth today. The best in the world, hands down. And I never thought I'd be working with Adventist youth. Always thought it would be, you know, others. And uh, what a blessing it was for me. Now, let me tell you this, this short story. I'm, I'm running out of time. I'm at AFCO, and I understand that if I want to be involved in evangelism, then I'm going to need a computer. Now, I didn't grow up in the computer age. We had typewriters when I went to school and um, been in prison while the computers were getting big. So I understand I'm going to need a computer if I'm going to be involved in evangelism. So I prayed, Lord, I have some money. I don't know if you want me to spend it on a computer. But if you do, then you've got to make it so plain to me that I cannot make a mistake because I don't want to spend this money foolishly. About a week later, now my church was such a wonderful church, the the Stoner Memorial Church. They would send me money every week, make sure I had enough money to eat and whatever. And so all of a sudden, a week after this prayer, the the, um, doorbell rings. I answer it. It's a UPS guy big box. I said, oh, look at this. One of my roommates got something good. He said, Kevin Sears? I said, yes. I said, I have a package for you. I said, for me? And so I signed right away, took it in. I open it up. It's a laptop computer. Someone in my church, before I was praying, decided they wanted to get me something while I was in AFCO. They knew the church was sending me money. They didn't want to give me money. They prayed about it, and they were impressed to buy me a computer. At that point, I knew where my life was going to be leading. I would be involved in evangelism, no question about it. And so that is what happened. I got out of prison. One thing led to another, led me to to ASI, Youth for Jesus. ASI has been my life for the past five years. It hasn't been a summer program. It's been my life for the last five years. It has been the greatest five years of my life working with these young people, seeing their lives transformed for evangelism and seeing the incredible miracles through that program. And I myself have grown so much uh, over this time. I want to share a scripture with you in closing. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians. You're very familiar with this verse. Chapter 5. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. My friends, at some point in every person's life, we are going to run face to face into Jesus Christ. And how we react to that will determine the direction the rest of our life will go. No matter how bad things are in your life, I want you to understand this. No matter what's going on in your life, you're not too far for God to reach you. And when you look at others, no matter how bad some kid seems or some adult seems, 
He is not out of the reach of the power of God. I hope that you've seen the power of Christ working in my life. You haven't seen me, but how incredible our God is. Thank you very much. We have a special music. And as we have this special music, I'd like for us to silently be in prayer, reflecting on the things that God has done in each one of our lives. Then when the music is over, I'll have a a special prayer with you. Thank you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.